Boom, what's up you guys? As we continue doing this series of the Protector Symposiums podcast series, I'm sharing with you guys what it's like to be at a Protector Symposium. Every single one of them, we cover uh, different topics with different specialists, but we have the entire library online at our online learning platform at protectornation.com for you guys to take in. So the, the, the actual event never, never ends. And there's so much amazing information. So if you like online learning or you want to watch some of your favorite tactical um, instructors uh, give presentations on some pretty awesome topics or you're just now, you know, carrying a weapon or you want to learn behavioral profiling, you want to learn blade work, different things like that. You want to know who to follow, things like that. These episodes are super cool because you're going to get like 10 minutes of each presentation to just wet your beak, if you will, um, and just kind of see what they're talking about. And then if you're interested, you can then obviously go over to protectornation.com and you can select that Protector Symposium and get all seven instructors full presentation or you can get the whole entire library. Uh, but we're putting out some really good information in these episodes and you're going to learn from a number of instructors. This is another really good episode to watch on YouTube. So if you guys aren't watching the podcast there, go and check that out on my YouTube channel. Uh, but more to come and with no and. If you haven't got tickets for the upcoming Protector Symposium, don't miss it. It's one of the most amazing tactical events per year. Every single symposium is a once-in-a-lifetime training event. So go to ProtectorSymposium.com and uh, see when the next one is coming up and come train with us. I look forward to shaking your hand, training with you. Byron Rogers, protected by nature and by trade. Enjoy. It's good to be with you today. And uh, I walk around a little bit before I get up on stage. But uh, we have an organization, and I would encourage you to kind of follow the same thing. It's really important to see with more than your eyes and hear with more than your ears. Um, and it's really important. For example, most of you are in the, the biz business of protecting people, keeping them alive, right? But if you come from my world, sometimes it's how do we make your guy unalive? So for example, I would never ever hit a PSD. But I'll tell you what I would do. I'd wait every single day till you failed to run your SDRs home from work to your family. And on a given day, I'd take out four of your PSD guys at home. Or I'd go home and rape and shoot your wife and your kids so that you were so distracted that you didn't function the next day with your principal. Why is it that Byron would ask me to speak to you today because I'm in the, the, the arena, the AO, the area of operation that involves human trafficking, or in our case, anti-human trafficking or child trafficking. We're one of the oldest running NGOs in the United States, established in 1993. So we've been doing this for quite a while. So for the time since 1993, we've seen a shift in the commodity, which is children and how they traffic those children, but also how they get those children back. So where would you fit in as someone who's a protector? If all of a sudden one day you felt, you know what, I need something different this. Well, protecting children is a pretty good purpose. So before I jump into this, let me show you what they do. A 12 year old girl gets picked up by local police. They call an aftercare unit. The aftercare unit comes, they drive their vehicle, they pick up the child and they take the child back to an aftercare facility. Two days later, the pimps, the thugs, the perpetrators, whatever, actually manage to get that child back. Various, men, various means, like whether they're on the phone or whatever it is, because that's their business. $2 billion in the United States for child pornography last year. Millions and millions of dollars in child trafficking. Not only just to mention human trafficking of adults as well. So how is it that they were able to go get the kid back? Because no one picked the child up in a nondescript vehicle with a security team that's armed because MS-13 and the cartel and the Bloods and the Crips and the Gershons, they're armed. No one scrubbed the child to make sure that that child couldn't be tracked back to the aftercare facility. No one had CODECOM, covert communications, to know that they were being listened to. And so the child that was saved, all of a sudden is no longer saved. And that happens all the time. 
And when they start to up their game, here's what they're going to do. They're going to go to an aftercare facility to get their kid back. They're going to kill everybody at the aftercare facility, and they're going to take everybody else in the stable, all 15 kids that you think are safe. So it's a whole different world out there when it comes to child trafficking or trafficking in the United States and globally. So I ask you the question, do you think that these children need protectors? They do. Now, I've been down the path that you've been down where I got paid large sums of money to keep very wealthy people alive. And from time to time, insurance companies will still pay our teams to go to Congo and get an executive out who you told not to go there in the first place. And it's fun and it can be exciting and it's a paycheck. But I tell you this, it is not as rewarding as saving the life of a child. Total innocence when nobody else will. I'm looking for him in the chapel. There's nowhere to be found. I walk out the front door and there he is right there. I'm right behind him. I could have taken the shot. Tapped him on the shoulder. He turned around. I looked at him. I said, brother, let's pray. Now, was I really wanting to pray? No, not really. What I had to do is I had to get him all the way to the back of the church. And, you know, in the Catholic church where your little pew goes down, you could get on your knees. Because we had to get back there so I could get the money out of my boots without anybody else seeing. So we got back there. We did the exchange. It's funny because I gave him all the money in one boot and he, he couldn't count. And he goes, okay, senor. He goes, this is good. And I went, well, I got the rest of the money over here. So I gave him the rest of the money, right? So why do I do that? I do that because if he were to ever drag me into a court of law, even though he's the bad guy, and his attorney were to say, Mr. Boss, did you cheat my client? Did you lie to my client? And if I were to say, well, yeah, I kind of did. He'd say, well, what makes you think you're not lying on the stand right now? And I know that from personal experience. And you need to think about that, too. What are you going to say in court if something goes sideways with your client and someone is trying to point the finger at you like the bad guy is trying to say, he shot me and I was unarmed. All I was doing is trying to dust his coat off. They got to think about those things. This little girl, we'll call her Nikki, she was sold by her parents at age seven in the state of Florida, age seven. She had been trafficked, she had been auctioned, she had been waterboarded, her entire back had whip marks or scars from being whipped. She had been hit by electrodes, she had an implant, she had a barcode that said she was to be sold for sex and labor. And the only thing she knew that was that God put her on this earth to be a sex slave. Now, why did she get this idea? Well, she got sold in to this group. And when she was about 18 years old, she managed to escape. And she ran to a really big church. And that's where she found her refuge. Makes sense, right? At the church, she met a female youth pastor. And the female youth pastor took her under her wing. They knew of her situation. And the female youth pastor said, look, next Wednesday night, come on over because we're going to have the girls get together. And so she did. She came to them and they had a pajama party and then did all the things that female youth pastors do and for girls at their place. So about a week later, they said, we're going to have it again on Wednesday. It's great. So Nikki goes over to the pastor's house and there's nobody else there. No one shows up. So the female youth pastor says, hey, guess what? Don't worry. We'll just have the, I don't know why anybody didn't show up. Go in the bedroom and get changed and we'll just like, we'll have a pajama party ourselves. And so Nikki goes in the bedroom and as she shuts the door, she doesn't realize there's a padlock on the outside of the door. Doesn't even see it. She goes in, the door gets locked. About an hour and a half later, the door is unlocked. The youth pastor, female youth pastor, comes in along with a sheriff. And they brutally rape her for four hours and make her submit. And he becomes the enforcer and she becomes the handler. 
for many, many years after that, she's working for them. Most people don't have your capability. Most people don't have your talent. And if you waste your talent just for a paycheck, you'll be a sorry son of a gun. I promise you that. Next slide, please. Make no doubt about it. These are God's children. And he's speaking to each and every one of us in a world of unprecedented evil that is literally out to destroy our children here in this country and around the globe. If we allow our children to grow up in a dysfunctional environment, they'll grow up to be dysfunctional adults. Ask yourself, is that really what you want to happen in your country? Next slide, please. So let me ask you a question. How do you murder a child without killing them? How do you murder a child without killing them? You sexually exploit them. There's a spiritual component to every human being. It's called your soul. And when children are trafficked, molested, abused, exploited, their soul is literally ripped from their very being. Now, each of you know that to be true, because you know what? We were all children. It was an embarrassment, to say the least, but it was all he could afford. And it did not reflect the status of anyone with a college degree. He pulled up to a university parking lot one morning and sat there telling God his plans to one day, very soon, have a more prestigious car, something that reflected his position as a theologian. And all of a sudden he hears tick, 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 as another crappy car pulled and parked right next to him. He looked up at God and said, well, thank you, Lord. At least I'm not the only one that has a crappy car. Someone can share my pain. And as he looked over, who do you think it was? It was the head of the theology department. He looked back up at God and said, oh, great. Now I can aspire to get a doctorate and have a much better crappy car. You see, the guy in the other car, the head of the theology department, could care less what he was driving. He was comfortable in who he was. Sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, we think we're holding on to possessions in reality. They're holding on to us. We're deceived in thinking a lot of things are essential when they are not. So look at your life as a professional and figure out what's essential in your mission every single day until you leave this earth. Something happened to one of my students in 1980. Uh, he got his ass kicked. And when he got his ass kicked, I felt worse when he was telling me the story. I was 20 years old. He's telling me the story and he's like, I'm so sorry, coach. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And while he's describing what happened, I'm like, fuck, I fucked up. Now, my background prior to that was I wrestled, I boxed, Bruce Lee junkie, like how many of you are Bruce Lee junkies in here? Like, you know, almost everybody, right? And, and uh, so a lot of you are, are, I see some older people here, but a lot of you are fake Bruce Lee junkies because you're like third generation. I was, I was 13 when he died, right? So it was right there. But, uh, so I, Bruce Lee fanatic, eclectic martial artist. Uh, I was into rest. I was wrestling for years before mixed martial arts. So we didn't realize back then that wrestling was a martial art, right? And uh, <clears throat> when I started teaching this kid, Mitch, his dad, the hell just fell? Microphone. Microphone? Okay. His dad uh, was a good friend of my family. And he saw me working out. He saw me training. And he says, Tony, I want you to teach my son. And I said, cool. And Joey says to me, I want you to teach my son. I said, cool, happy to. He said, getting bullied at school. I said, happy to. He said, how much do you charge? So I'm not gonna charge your friend of the family. And he goes, no, no, I want you to take this serious. I want us to be like completely separate. I want the lesson planned. This is my kid, he's getting bullied in school. And I said, okay. He said, I'm gonna pay you 20 bucks. I'm pretty good at math, so I figured that's five lessons because I'm making four bucks an hour. So he says, I'll pay you 20 bucks. I say, okay. 
He said, every class you'll get $20. And I suddenly realized, holy shit, he's gonna pay me $20 a class? And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm rich. I haven't even taught a class yet. I'm like thinking, this is amazing. So I start teaching Mitch. Three months later, which is a magic number for any of you that fight or ever, ever fought amateur pro, like three months is that cycle to prepare. Three months later, he gets into confrontation. Now, I've always been very, very moral and ethical uh, and, and legal-minded. How I grew up, how I, I, I open doors for people, I, I say thank you, I say please. I would always knock on my father's door. Can I come in, sir? You know, like at the office. Very, very, so that translated into how I taught self-defense. But what I was teaching, and this is so important, I was teaching what's called block-based training. Do these series of drills like this, and you learn how to do these punches, these kicks. You learn, uh, you know, how to grapple. You learn, and I, and I was teaching the stuff that I knew, which is what we all do. So here we are, 1980, and I'm training Mitchell. And he's doing private lessons every week. And I come for his private lesson this next week, and he's sitting there, and he's fucking fuming. And uh, I could tell something was wrong because he was like, like red and rigid. And he jumps up and he starts freaking going, motherfucker, run around. I go, hey, calm down. What's going on? What happened? And uh, he says, I was running late for class. And this bully, and up until then, he had been asking me, and it was really funny, you know, when, when can I, because he's 15. Like, when can I fight? When can I do something? And I said, Mitchell, it's not retroactive. The guy's been emotionally bullying you. The school's not doing anything, but he hadn't put his hand on you yet. You're not going to do anything to the guy. If he, your dad's paying me, if he puts his hand on you, now you've got to protect yourself. So he's biting, at, like as any 15-year-old learning how to fight, he's biting at, 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 the, at the bit to like, do something, right? So he's late for class. He's running for class. And he's telling me the story in real time. He says, I'm late for class, running for class. And the guy trips me. He's sitting at the back against a bunch of locker banks with his friends. He trips me. I go flying with my school books. And everyone starts laughing. He said, I'm picking up my books. And it was the first time I asserted myself. I said, you fucking piece of shit. And the guy got up and said, what did you say? And he walks up to Mitchell. And it was the first time he put his hands on him. He pokes him. What did you say? Mitchell didn't have a mic on, so you didn't hear that at school, but, but that was the sound it made, right? And, uh, and the guy goes, and Mitchell loses it because he got poked, but it wasn't like how we learn how to fight. So he grabs him in an emotional moment, grabs him, slams, Mitchell grabs this bully, slams him against the locker bank, and he yells at him, he says, fucking leave me alone. You've been bugging me since school started. I don't even fucking know you. And he stops telling the story there. And I go, and? He goes, yeah, he dropped me with a left hook. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean he dropped you? To, like, why didn't you, Karate Kid hadn't come out yet, but what I said is, why didn't you wax on, wax off, right? I didn't say those words, but it was like, why didn't you slip? Why didn't you parry? Why didn't you check it? Why didn't you block it? Why didn't you do any of the shit we told you? And he looks at me, guys, and guys is inclusive, right? Gang. And he says to me, you gotta be careful these days, I could be canceled in a fucking second, right? So uh, he looks at me and he goes, you can see him replaying the fight in his mind. He goes, well, I was holding his shirt and he, then he goes, and I had my school books in my other hand. Like picture this moment if you know how to throw a punch and this is your opponent holding your shirt, holding his books. Imagine if you had to box somebody with shit in your hands and their hands were free. How long do you get punched in the face? Like immediately. So here he is, and this is the thing I didn't know at the time. And it took seven years of discovery, and it's what I'm gonna teach this weekend. It took seven years of discovery and decades more to understand the neuroscience behind it. I'm gonna talk a little bit about that now. But tonight's talk is really about reframing what you understand about neuroscience and physiology and how that can make you safer, regardless of whether you train with me or not. Okay? So that's my, that's my objective in, in the next hour. When Mitchell demoed that, and I've told the story a thousand times, it was like the god of self-defense hit me with a lightning bolt. And I said to myself, we teach self-defense wrong. 
And I said, we collectively. Now, how arrogant of a 20-year-old kid to say we teach them. But what I realized is we all practice self-defense through an unconscious bias that, is, that we're seduced by our body type, ectomorph, mesomorph, I like grappling, he likes kicking, he likes striking. And if you ask every martial art expert guru, does your system work in the street, how many will say to you, no, of course not? Or how many say, of course? Everyone does, everyone believes that, right? And you practice that. And I'm, and I'm talking about like, like intelligent people. So it's not, oh, this guy's a snake oil seller. I'm talking about those douchebags. I'm talking about legit people. That's what we do. And if you ask a jiu-jitsu player, if you ask a boxer, if you ask a kickboxer, if you ask a tie boxer, could you defend yourself in the street? If they've got any experience, they're gonna say, fuck yeah. Let me ask you this. How many of you have done weapon retention drills? Let me see a show of hands. This is all the exercise you're getting tonight, so alternate arms so you don't overdevelop the shoulder. Where does a weapon retention drill start with? Start. 99% of them are the, the role player grabbing your gun, you pin the gun, you're hitting at the, ra the radial nerve and striking and doing some stuff there. Every time you start a headlock, a gun disarm, a gun grab, a tackle, Practice defense against the tackle, so a bunch of grapplers here. Defense against the tackle. What are your options? Guillotine, sprawl. If you're late, pull guard, yes? Every time you practice that, in order for you to practice that, what listen to the wording here, what must you let occur in the training? In so what's that? Close a little too esoteric and philosophical, but I know where you're going. For me to practice a sprawl, what do I need to let happen? I need to let the guy tackle me, and I need to let him shoot in. If I sprawl early, I just did a fucking burpee. Who the fuck wants to do an extra burpee? Right? And what I did, and this is what I want to share, and this is the drills we're going to do tomorrow, is all of you are human weapons. And we've been domesticated in some ways. And if we haven't been domesticated, you go, what are you talking about domesticated? I've been training my whole life. You've been training neural patterns. And under high stress pressure, you will either completely flinch. I know guys that are freaking like hunters of bad guys who have knife and bullet wounds on their forearms and hands. How does that happen? You all know, if you check me out a little bit, the whole start a flinch position, right? Your brain doesn't go, if someone says, look out, your brain doesn't quickly go, put your hands up quick and cover your head. Like that movement is non-conscious. It bypasses all cognition. I said it earlier, and I'll say it again, because it's important, it's worth, it's worth re-hearing, re-listening to. We all talk about left to bang, we all talk about get off the X, we all talk about situational awareness. But what we don't talk about is when we are compromised. And there's evidence that that happens, right? What happens there at a physiological level is if I see a spider, I'm walking into my shed or my basement and I see a spider web and I'm walking and I see that, I'll go, oh fuck, I hate spiders. And then I look for something to do this to and then right, I'm doing that. That's me, I know that looks a little lame. How many of you lost a lot of respect for me when I just demoed that, right? Like, I was like, fuck. Like, what a, what a, what a lame way to kill a Spider-Man. Okay. Um, how many of you have done that? You see a spider and you fucking take something and you, you just, uh, and don't, I don't know, we don't kill spiders because they eat, blah, 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 I'm not, right? And then how many of you have also walked into a spider web that you didn't see? And what do you do? Do you go like this? Do you go, and go, oh, spiderweb. Hey, can I call you back? I walked into spiderweb. Or do you suddenly know startle flinch kung fu? You're like, right, you're, you're doing this shit. The movement completely bypassed cognitive thinking. And this is so important. Because that reaction to protect the head and cover the head, cover the command center, happens in gunfights, in knife fights, and you almost always see trauma. Someone goes through a car window, not wearing their seatbelt, ask any paramedic 
any firefighter where there's always trauma. Do you guys know where? On the hands and forearms. Because people in a holy shit moment don't go through their window going, fuck, God, right? But think about how fucking fast your survival system is to you hit a tree or a wall or a car, and before you go through the window, your hands are already in front of your face. Now, if you've got eyes on target and you're watching and you're tracking and you, and here's another problem. I said it earlier. Most of the training we do is gun is over here, knife is over here, uh, attack is like this, and it's compartmentalized, which means you've eliminated the connection to a scenario and the pre-contact cues that lead up to it. So we are following a normal learning pattern called stimulus response training. You do this and I do this, right? Throw a right hook, bob and weave. Throw a right hook, bob and weave, right? Left hook, check it, right? We're learning, throw a kick, check it, right? We're learning and you need to do that. So this is that, that, that reminder of check yourself. I'm not saying you don't have to do that. What I'm saying is all fights are dangerous, but the most dangerous fight is an ambush. And when you get ambushed, the organic airbag deploys to protect you because the bottom tier of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is survival. Your brain defaults at a survival level. It will do whatever it can to survive. I would ask how many people here now are carrying a knife of any type. That's pretty much all of you. What it comes back down to is primitive self-defense. And this is just primitive as it gets. Um, what I'll show you guys here can be done with any object of weight. Uh, it doesn't have to be a knife. There's no difference, as you'll see, between this knife and this soda can. None. In the time I need to do what I need it to do, Tom, you talk a lot about time. And the uh, same thing applies. You know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm using this as a transfer of force. Is it deadly? Absolutely. Can I bury a blade in you where the handle sucks into your body? Absolutely. And I'm going to say some things here that are kind of gruesome. What I kind of want to talk about here is close quarters disassembly in the aspect of, I'm going to say this a lot, my oh shit distance, or whatever we want to call it, inside of 10 feet or inside of, if I took any of you up here right now and said, how close can I get to you before I can punch you, you would tell me to stop right before I can punch you, probably right, right here. And you can feel that distance when somebody gets into your bubble. That's the same thing I'm doing anywhere, you know, 10 feet or less. If I see the guys at 10 feet and I go, hey dude, no, 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 stop. And he brings that crowbar and I'm just, right, on my way out. It becomes a whole different thing. But, you know, as this begins, it's like, okay, well, how do you just do that and be able to throw a knife that you can, can, can tell will transfer an amount of force that will put somebody down or at least give me enough time to get away or fight to my next weapon or fight to cover or grab my kids and run, whatever it is. I'm not throwing it to, to kill you. This isn't the movies. Uh, a throwing star, you know, was like the first thing I saw when I was a little kid. And I was like, well, what's the reason for it, actually? And that reason is to stop somebody from chasing you. Well have Hussein Bolt chasing me and I'll put a knife in him. He won't be able to run as fast as me. Betcha. So, you know, it becomes a, a thing of, of a um, implemented self-defense. It's just an instinctive reaction. So if I'm here and I, all I've got a blade, all I have is a blade and he closes the gap, well, what do I got to do? I got to use my blade effectively against him close quarters, right? Right there. And that becomes now we're both cutting each other. And as a, as a knife guy, you will never, ever see me want to go knife on knife with someone. Never will happen. Will not happen. I will run like a little girl. And if I can shoot you, I'll shoot you. If I can throw a knife at you, I'll throw a knife at you. But my first object is to get away or get to safety. So, you know, the knife throwing thing kind of came around as like a, a way to uh, interrupt. A way to... Um, so It's fun because I, I don't call anything knife throwing. It's actually classified as projecting a cut. So if I said... If I had a cavalry saber and I wanted you to cut something, I wouldn't have you stop. So the same thing with knife throwing becomes cut projection. And that's all I'm doing is projecting a saber cut fold. Well, you know, there's, there's the, the first question that people are going to ask is, why in the hell are you throwing knife? Well, first, I wouldn't tell you to throw your only knife. I mean, if it's me, I'm probably going to because I'm leaving right after that. Or I'm going to throw it in my pistols right here and it's going to be right here. But that first attack lets me not second guess what's behind you. Because, I mean, there's a lot of studies out there. I've seen it happen in my own hometown, a guy filming for cops. And that guy came in to Wendy's and pulled that gun, and all those cops shot him. And once people start shooting, you can't tell who's shooting. So even though the bad guy had a BB gun, it doesn't matter. Everybody's shooting, and one of those rounds went through that dude and hit the camera guy, right? 
and killed him because it went off at a 45 degree angle after it went through the guy. Well, that's something that as citizens, we got to deal with, you know what I mean? And say, look, if I'm in a crowded room, I might carry my pistol and my staccato's not far. But if I have to pull that pistol and shoot it, well, I'm going to shoot you more than once. I'm going to shoot you till you drop. The same thing I'm going to do with the blade. I'm going to hit you with a blade and I'm going to either fight to my cover or concealment or my next weapon. I'm only using that to interrupt your mental and to deliver a, a, um, a force multiplier. Uh, this little knife is the baby tooth. This is a knife that I make, uh, but this will throw through a hockey puck. And so if anybody's seen, how many of you guys see me throw knives on YouTube and Instagram and all that crap? People know that, right? So it's not like a carnival thing. You can see that what I'm doing is, is delivering a, a force. And if you can see that fast enough, the knife's not actually rotating. So we'll get into all the physics stuff here in a little bit. Talk about the why. Well, why would I want to throw a knife at somebody? Probably because they're bigger than me. They have a more formidable weapon than me. They can hit me once with, let's say, look, I have this knife. And even if I'm a good knife fighter and the guy has a baseball bat, am I going to be like, all right? No, because if he hits me once, I'm dead. You know what I mean? That's, that's it. You're not, going to, you're not going to play that game. But what I can do is say, uh-uh, and I can go out and I can leave. And I'm on my way out. So I can make sure that he's not going to be able to follow me. And um, you know, it's fun because you can take the blade and test this and say, look, I can stab a blade as hard as I want into that target. And I know for a fact that that'll bury any single one of us. Under a clothes, under a bulletproof vest, it doesn't matter. I can throw knives right through a bulletproof vest. And uh, there's only been one to stop me. Um, but it's uh, one of those frass flexible rifle armor system vests, which are pretty cool, expensive. But um, the thing is, it's a transfer of force. So I'm adding this as a tool in my toolbox, not to say, oh, I'm just going to throw a knife at every single person because I'm going to teach you guys tomorrow. What I'm doing here is, is anti-rotation. I'm just taking the knife like this and I'm projecting a cut forward. I'll do it really slow. And all I'm doing is projecting a cut forward. And you'll notice I have my right foot forward because if I end like this, I'm crossed. I'm crossed my center of meridian. I've crossed my center of balance. But if I'm stay here square, and I'm just like I'm walking. Well, it doesn't matter. Step forward, step back. Well, I'm grabbing my next weapon. In this case, I threw the knife. I'm going, and if I don't have nothing else, I'm going to grab another blade. You know what I mean? Because I'm always going to have a more formidable weapon than my enemy. So we talk about preparedness. You talk about the tools that you use. You talk about these things. Well, this is part of it. Well, I'll also say it like this. If I got this blade, but I'm sitting in a perfectly good metal chair, and the bad guy comes into the room and starts trying to cut people up. Well, I'm not going to throw the knife. I'm going to throw the chair at him. Why wouldn't I do that? You know what I mean? So it's, it's about logic and delivery of, of an applied system. Now, if you look at what I've done here with, with knife, you know, I love the questions of the where and the why and the how. Well, it's just like a tomahawk was used on a battlefield. It wasn't meant to have a fighting system and cut all your men down with all this and keep retrieving it. You hit the guy, you grab another weapon, or you throw it at it and your next weapon you, you use it to interrupt the force you're I'm, I'm stopping guys like byron rogers from stomping me into the dirt when i can just be like uh-uh you know what i mean and i'll put the knife through it and then grab my next weapon so that can also be done with a stapler a pair of needle nose pliers a paring knife a, a, a can of soda it, it doesn't matter a one inch ball bearing a can of campbell soup i can have in any non-permissive environment in the world and you will put someone in the hospital with one the thing is you have to learn how to transfer force and that becomes an easy thing to do if you just remember, I'm cutting. I'm never stopping my hand. So what we find, you know, is I've done a lot of training and a lot of testing over the years just to see exactly what a person can get through and what type of force it is. You know, I've had people call bullshit, and that's great. I have no problems with that. Um, what I would say is anything in 10, side of 10 feet, it doesn't rotate at all. So it's just cut projection. And it comes out of my hand really as straight as it can be and just delivers into into the target so that just becomes another tool in the toolbox to say oh, I don't want this hit me i'm caught off guard i'm standing here talking to, to whoever and and i'm just like hey uh-uh i don't want that well here's my interruption and go you know i mean and, and it becomes you can come from here and go you know what i mean so it's just a learning how to use your body learning how to employ this into um into usage and it's very simplified it's either no spin or one spin 25 feet away i'm throwing this knife and it goes that's it so it's very applicable once you get how to actually project a cut and that's how you think about it a cut projection and i'll show you guys all this stuff as we go 
But the first most important thing is to realize why you're throwing a knife. Force multiplier. Uh, uh, to bridge the gap so he cannot chase you or attack you with as much intensity as he was going to originally. Because if I throw a blade, I, I mean, I carry. If I, can, if I can drop you with a gun, I'm going to do it. But if I, don't, I can't, or there's people there, I got to have another option. And that's either don't shoot the gun, run away, fight to cover and do the next thing, or do a very primitive thing and hit him with something. You know what I mean? So uh, I watched a video that made me crack up and uh, you know, it goes right to the point. You know, it's one of those awesome hood vines. You've seen those, right? The guy's chasing the guy down the street and he's got a bat or something. I get animated when I talk, so I apologize. But he's chasing down the street and the guy sees one of those little folding wooden tables just leaning up against the side of the wall. And he grabs it like this and turns and throws it at the guy. Hits him square in the face and fights. Done. Yeah, just like that. So, I mean, what I'm doing is not rocket science. It's just learning how to take what you already have. Now, I would say, am I going to throw my only knife? Obviously not. This is all logic and based upon experience. I mean, I hunt with knives. We have a lot of fun. And uh, spears and everything else. I, I'm probably one of the only guys I know that tries to get my buddies to go out and go deer hunting with spears with me. But, you know, it, it's like, look, if I get to here and I've already been hit, you're already, you're already behind the eight ball, right? So then we're going to learn uh, disassembly. And what that means is, like, basically, I can't throw my blade at somebody. It's already too close which is fine. It, it happens. But what you're going to learn is like, and I'll have a, tomorrow we'll get some of you guys that can be a, a maybe a partners with me and I can take some of these. Uh, how many guys know what this is? Okay. So no, yeah, he knows what that is. So we'll, we'll use those that way we can actually show what, what thing, but if I get to hit and the guy's already attacking me, whatever and people ask me all the time, what knife do I carry? What knife do I carry? Well, it's like this. If I can't get this knife out under duress while I'm being punched and while I'm falling backwards, it's a tool. So like a carpenter, I've been a carpenter all my life. I've had knives that fold all the time, but my knife better open under duress if I intend on for any And, uh, you know, that's like the big, the way I've made this go has been uh, just a simple work knife. I can pull this thing out in a restaurant, cut my steak with it. Same time I can throw it through a hockey puck. This is a quarter inch thick. It has weight to it. And, uh, you know, I can pass one of those right knives around so you guys can see it. Uh, but the thing is, is that I use it as a tool, but be a tool. So it becomes a weapon. Everything's a, it works like that with everything. Gun is a tool. Everything's a tool. I hate when they're like, oh, you can't have a weapon. I'm like, it's not a weapon. It's a tool. You know, the, the tagline that everybody has for me is, you know, violence is really the answer. But when it is, it's the only answer. And it's funny, the civilian community, they love the first part you know, it's really easy to understand when violence isn't the answer. Whatever you have difficulty with is the other side of it. You know, when it is the answer, it's the only answer. How do you define that? That, to me, is the most interesting question. Uh, it's really interesting. In the communities that I've, I've, I come from, law enforcement, military, all the groups I've trained over the years, they all say the same thing. There's a lot of great information at the lower levels of force continuum or rules of engagement. And what's very interesting is when it gets to that level where operator is free and clear to do anything to save their life, what do they tell you? Do whatever it takes, dot, dot, dot. When you need most specific information, they go wing it. And that's where you hear people like, well, I'll gouge his eye, I'll do this, I'll do that. But they never train them. They talk shit, but they never train it. Okay, so why do we look, why, why would it even be useful? Because oftentimes, especially in the civilian community, they'll look at, I don't want to learn anything from these guys. There's nothing to learn, they're criminals. And see, this is the, this is the, this is probably the number one thing, the number one you know, game that's been pulled on us. Because this is so reprehensible to us, we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We sit there and we say, there's nothing to learn here. I'm a good guy. So I'm gonna use my good guy tactics. These people live in a very different environment. It's basically a petri dish of asocial violence. Now asocial violence, what does that mean? That means imminent grievous bodily harm is about to happen. There's no communication, head down, focus, usually no facial contact and it's just action. Very different than antisocial aggression, which we'll talk about later. 
Most importantly, the reason we should look at these guys is because violence is their currency. Nothing happens without the successful threat of violence, and then rarer than you think, the actual use of violence to enforce it. Why? Violence allows them to run the yard, violence allows them to run the streets, violence allows them to make money. Why why did you kind of make me do that? I didn't weigh in the fact that he was a father or a brother or a son to, to anybody. You know, I didn't see him as a human person. Okay. So I told you that he stabbed him 67 times. Why is that of interest to us? Because the mental examiner went over the body, 65 of those stabs were survivable. Meaning, if he'd got medical attention, he would have lived. Only two of those 67 were of use. And what did it come down to? It came down to targeting where to go on the human body, anatomy, which at this level, they don't have that. So now you can hear from two of, uh, leader of former leader of Aryan Brotherhood, former leader of the Mexican Mafia, and they're gonna tell you how they recruit, what they, how they look at violence, and at that level, what's important. Most people in the world, when they look at another human, they focus, they focus on the differences between each other. Alpha predators look for the similarities. And that's through a cognitive, you know, cognitive study of anatomy and how, how the body responds to trauma. Absolutely critical. So it was two guys, they were in the yard, and it was two black guys from black gorilla family, and they were just standing across from each other, and they were just slowly going into each other, doing really, really weird angles that they were coming in, and they were doing things. They were simulating, I could tell they were simulating stabbing using some sort of a tool. And, you know, the corrections guy was looking at me, and he goes, oh, what do you think, what do you think, what are you doing? And I go, I don't know, I don't know, is it some, you know, some new version of Jailhouse Rock, or some, you know, martial art, or something like that, you know, I, I knew he was screwing with me, I didn't know what it was. And he goes, no. He goes, we had a fight in the yard yesterday. Yeah. He goes, yeah, I'm gonna show you that video. And so he showed it to me, sure enough, there's somebody to fight, and Cirque comes out, and they're in there, and they're ripping everybody off. They came out with full gear, the whole deal. And yeah, okay, pretty standard, get it. He goes, what did you see? And I go, I yeah, saw so you guys go out and do it. He goes, no, what did you see? And I go, I don't know. He goes, look again. So we watched it again. When you look at what's going on here, that's fine, it's pretty normal. What I didn't notice the first time was everybody outside. Guess what they're doing? They're on the ground, every head is watching everything that's going on. And he goes, yeah, they're watching everything, right? And yeah. He goes, now let's go back to this. And he shows the video again. He goes, what do you think they're doing? All these different angles, right? He goes, that's the first time they've seen our new gear. He goes, it was everybody's job in the yard to find all the vulnerabilities in the gear, and the next day they were training for it. So I look at protective gear very differently. And so the first time somebody shows me protective gear, I go, oh yeah, right there, right there, right there, right there. You know, because that's exactly how they look. They don't look at things as a deterrent. They sit there and they say, okay, how can we get information, and now how can we overcome this? on it. When you apply just a little bit of that to your life, it's amazing how much easier things are to deal with when you think, when you understand. If you, if you imagine yourself living in a world where violence was the currency, and the successful tool of it, you look at things very differently in how you train. I've paid the price for using the term violence for 30 years. I got banned in countries, literally banned because I, I use the term violence and stuff. All of a sudden, I don't know what it is about the last two years, all of a sudden violence is a big buzzword. Everybody's using violence. Let me tell you why I use the term violence, the very specific term. You can fight with your wife, you can fight with your boss, you can fight with your friend. It's a very vague term. 
when you use the term violence, everybody understands what you're talking about. Okay, it's just a very specific term. And what's interesting is people love to talk about all the, all the and I'm not saying it's not good information, but people love to talk about the, the indicators prior, and then they want to talk about what happens after. Very little people like to talk about the point of violence and what you have to do. And what's interesting is you don't do self-defense. Self-defense, there's no such thing as self-defense. Self-defense is the use of violence that has been determined to be justified after the fact. It's violence that you need to learn how to use. And there's nothing wrong with studying violence. It does not make you violent. How you use the term will be either criminal use of violence or it will be the justified use. That's really it. And when you have a clear understanding of when the tool would ever be justified and useful, it's great. You actually end up living a much more peaceful life. You don't respond to things that you used to respond to. What I often see is I see a lot of people getting really efficient at the wrong things. Things that will not get a result. So really what you have to look at first and foremost in your training is do you have the right principles? Have you laid those out and are you getting efficient at those principles and the execution of those principles? And if you make that change, that's just that little tweak in your training, you'd be surprised how much everything leapfrogs after that. I got a challenge for you. When you look at an act of violence, be it movies, CCTV, any of you guys, any of you guys belong on Ed Calderon's uh, Telegram group, you can watch that. You really want to challenge yourself, watch that. When you look at an act of violence, understand one thing. There is nothing to be learned from the victim's perspective. Nothing. That does not mean that you don't empathize with the victim. But what you want to do is you want to always associate, when you look at violence, you look at it agnostically. Ignore the story, turn the volume off. Watch the act of violence. Where did things change in the other person's favor? Usually it's an injury, and then they double down on that until it's over. That's useful information. So just a little bit about, uh, about my background too. Just so, you know, you always want to have a reference when you're listening to, uh, because my is going to come from my, uh, my background. So I started off uh, engaged in a lot of violent uh, activities, right? So I was attracted to uh, combat sports when I was young and uh, wrestled from the time I was five years old and uh, got into boxing when I was a little bit older. What I'm going to talk about in the, in the first part of this talk is thinking critically about conflict. And I, I say conflict because I want to open it up to different types of struggle, things that might, people might not say are violent, but it's just a conflict, right? So one side is fighting against another in some way, shape, or form for an outcome, a goal. And, uh, you know, people, when you say violence, people have an idea of what you're talking about, right? But conflict is a broader term. The things that I'm going to talk about here are the logic of conflict. So this is a little bit more academic probably than some of you might want. Um, I will show you some people getting stabbed to death later if that violence porn is something that you're looking to get into. But it's important that we understand the universals behind conflict itself. Start in the beginning. A lot of people will begin a study or teaching people and they start in the middle. They start with how to throw a punch or, and, they, and people think that's the beginning. Like how to throw a punch. Well, that's day one. That's, that's, how, that's how we're going to start with like little kids and stuff. Well, actually, what you should do with little kids is teach them this stuff I'm going to show you right now. Because then they can put in framework, why are they throwing the punch? And how is that going to get them to the goal that they want, right? You know, we're all pretty... Um, I think pretty familiar with uh, society, how society has been progressing, but it, it's really always been violent. You know, this whole thing of like, hey, we're more violent now than we used to, I don't know, maybe in different ways, but we're pretty violent from the very beginning. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of riots nowadays, stuff like that, different groups that are that are publicly doing mass violence and destruction. Uh, that's stuff to to be concerned about. And some people are looking at uh, dealing with masses and groups, mobs, if you will, uh, and the type of, of dynamics that you have in that type of environment. They're, they are specific and they need to be understood. But there are universals to them as well as uh, any other type of violence. So what are the universals? What are the things that are found in all of these? And I want to start there. That's actually the beginning. The beginning is the universal. Um, and then we look at the specifics. We start looking, getting into the dynamics of a situation where you're looking at multiple, uh, multiple attackers, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, you know, just different visuals of, of kind of mass violence. Different groups have different um, goals in these types of situations, but we have to understand first the universals that are behind all of this, right? Violence is, is part of life. So it's not a, um, to me, it is, the, it is absolutely the, uh, the standard of the ultimate the ultimate currency is violence. Uh, everything else is, is some kind of shadow of that. And we have to understand, too, that violence is not, see, actual violence or the use of violence is not necessarily the currency. The currency is the threat of violence. Actual violence is just to establish that that is on the table, right? So if you had somebody and you, uh, you said, hey, uh, I don't want you to do what you're doing, and I'm going to punch you in the face until you stop doing it. Well, punching them in the face, if I, if I told that same person, I'll punch you in the face once if you do it, and then never again will I ever do anything if you continue to do that thing. They'll take the punch, and then they'll just continue to do whatever they want to do for as long as they want to do it. We start with the universal elements because at the Everything else we built on that foundation of understanding. The analysis that we use later in big strategic analysis, if we deconstruct what happened, we can use the universals as part of the deconstruction of that. So we talk about three core elements to conflict. And the first one is force. Um, as, we, as we go down the list here, space and time, and that's it. Universals, when you start talking about universals, you're not gonna talk about thousands of things, right? In one topic, the universals get boiled down and it will be a handful of things. And there'll be an elemental aspect to each one. Elemental means I can't break it down any further than this and it be something different than that, right? So force has a lot of aspects to it but it is definitely in a category. I can't find another category that's on that elemental level, that universal level. So for space and time, we'll talk about it all the time. We will begin to analyze situations uh, using the understanding of for space and time. We will look at what we're planning to do. As we, as we go down the list here, space and time, and that's it. Universals, when you start talking about universals, you're not going to talk about thousands of things, right? In one topic, the universals get boiled down and it will be a handful of things. And there'll be an elemental aspect to each one. Elemental means I can't break it down any further than this and it be something different than that. And what I'm planning to do uh, in my strategy, utilizing for space and time or either suppressing my opponent's ability to do that, the opposite force uh, ability to do that, or uh, developing my ability to do any one of these things to a greater extent. And that's where everything lies. These are the universal elements of conflict. Space, what do we mean by that? Well, my ability to move freely, my ability to control an area, to control a perimeter, to control space, uh, or move through space, or limit my opposition to do that? How do I confine them? How do I channelize them? 
How do I put them into choke points? So mobility, access, and range will be, you know, describing uh, space. Uh, for a fight to last more than five or six seconds would be super long fight. Like something went wrong, real wrong, you know, because, uh, you know, from the get-go, I'm going to, I want to land some, some lightning bolts on this guy's jaw. And in the time that he is affected, I'm going to fucking land everything I can. And I'm going to smash him and smash him until he's horizontal. If you follow up and using force, space and time and hit in that, that time that you buy from an effective strike or an effective attack of any sort, if you can capitalize on that time that you've earned, you can just pound him into the ground like a nail. And, uh, and, and that's, that's what you, you know, watching multiple fights and being in a lot of fights, you realize that's crucial. I've got to go first. I'm not going second. I have to have time on my side. This applies to everything, by the way. Not just a, a fight in an alley. Like, don't give up time. The initiative is yours. Now, can we do that realistically in the, in the, uh, in the job of executive protection? Well, in some aspects, you can. Be proactive in a lot of ways. Being proactive is taking the initiative in that aspect. You might not be able to be physically proactive. That might not be part of the job. Part of the job may be reacting to an emerging threat. It almost always is. But there are things that you do proactively so that your, the amount of time you give up when that emerging threat happens, the amount of time that that person buys can be less and less and less. And if your awareness is pushed out far enough, effectively, you can see things happening and really give almost nothing up, almost nothing. Each element allows for exploitation of another, right? So I may have force, a force component that, that I control. I may be able to gain space through the use of this force. I may be able to control time because of a use of this force. You know, like, how does that work? Well, if I have guns that will shoot that, that other group from a thousand yards away and they're going to approach my castle and their guns shoot from 500 yards away, I'll engage them before they engage me. Right? So my force was one that allowed me to start this fight before they can start the fight effectively. The other thing that we must do is hone the weapon. The weapon is you, right? The weapon is your mind and everything that it can control. But what we want to do is we want to increase personal readiness, you know, and you'll see that readiness here is uh, in all caps, right? So <clears throat> kind of a term that people use a lot and uh, they, you know, have vague ideas, but let's define it. Just very similar to force, space and time. We're going to look at the universals of readiness. What does it mean to be ready? How many times have you heard someone say, yeah, I was born ready. No, you weren't. That's bullshit. You weren't born ready. You were a baby and you were shitting your pants. So, you know, the bravado is not something I need. I don't need bravado. What I need is intelligence, education, clear thinking, logic. That's what I want. Boom, quick shout out to our sponsor, Staccato. My first pistol sponsor. Um, I've been sponsored by a lot of companies, right, over the years, but when it comes to pistol, that's my bread and butter. Pistol is something I believe in. You know, I'm a competitive shooter. You know, we're shooting anywhere from, you know, 800 rounds a month type of thing, right? So Staccato being what I believe is one of, if not the most complete handguns you can put in your hand. Um, it's got every component that a handgun could have, should have. Uh, they're actually extremely dependable now that they've made some changes. And these things are straight up tack drivers. If you're looking for a pistol that will do as much of the work for you as a piece of hardware can, obviously you have to have the, the, the marksmanship and all the different things, but different guns perform at different levels. And I want to say that Staccato is one of by far, for sure, take it from a competitive shooter, we're shooting the highest volumes of rounds constantly right now, not used to have a background guy, but like right now, when you go shoot, you're gonna see certain brands 
Cicado is one of, if not the highest performing firearm that is both CCW, duty ready, and also competitive ready. So I wanna give them a shout out if you guys are looking for a good handgun to build your skills on top of, go check out Cicado. Much love and respect. Boom, yo, what up? I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. Hey, listen, in order to get more out of the brand, I wanna encourage you to go join us on our social media platforms and join us at protectornation.com. We post different types of content on our different platforms at different times. Uh, you'll get blog posts, you'll get videos, you'll get real world combat engagements and things like that. So stay plugged in in order to get the most out of the brand. In order to support us, also go to protectornation.com and buy something or join forces with me on Patreon. You'll scroll down the homepage and you'll see the link. Uh, anything you can give counts, you know, think about whatever you would lose in your cushions or like spend on McDonald's this month, five bucks a month, whatever it is. Uh, that helps, that helps us make the world a better place by making good people dangerous. Anyways, this is Byron Rogers, protector by nature and by trade. And I'll see you on the next piece of content, whether it's a video or podcast out.